Chapter 8 of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter 8 England under William I, the Norman Conqueror. Upon the ground where brave Harold fell, William the Norman afterwards founded an abbey which, under the name of Battle Abbey, was a rich and splendid place through many a troubled year, though now it is a grey ruin overgrown with ivy. But the first work he had to do was to conquer the English thoroughly, and that, as you know by this time, was hard work for any man. He ravaged several counties, he burned and plundered many towns, he laid waste scores upon scores of miles of pleasant country, he destroyed innumerable lives. At length Stigand, Archbishop of Canterbury, with other representatives of the clergy and people, went to his camp and submitted to him. Edgar, the insignificant son of Edmund Ironside, was proclaimed king by others, but nothing came of it. He fled to Scotland afterwards, where his sister, who was young and beautiful, married the Scottish king. Edgar himself was not important enough for anybody to care much about him. On Christmas Day, William was crowned in Westminster Abbey, under the title of William I., but he is best known as William the Conqueror. It was a strange coronation. One of the bishops who performed the ceremony asked the Normans in French if they would have Duke William for their king. They answered yes. Another of the bishops put the same question to the Saxons in English. They too answered yes with a loud shout. The noise being heard by a guard of Norman horse soldiers outside was mistaken for resistance on the part of the English. The guard instantly set fire to the neighbouring houses, and a tumult ensued, in the midst of which the king, being left alone in the abbey, with a few priests, and they all being in a terrible fright together, was hurriedly crowned. When the crown was placed upon his head, he swore to govern the English, as well as the best of their own monarchs. I dare say you think, as I do, that if we accept the great Alfred, he might pretty easily have done that. Numbers of the English nobles had been killed in the last disastrous battle. Their estates, and the estates of all the nobles who had fought against him there, King William seized upon, and gave to his own Norman knights and nobles. Many great English families of the present time acquired their English lands in this way, and are very proud of it. But what is got by force must be maintained by force. These nobles were obliged to build castles all over England to defend their new property, and do what he would the king could neither soothe nor quell the nation as he wished. He gradually introduced the Norman language and the Norman customs, yet for a long time the great body of the English remained sullen and revengeful. On his going over to Normandy to visit his subjects there, the oppressions of his half-brother Odo, whom he left in charge of his English kingdom, drove the people mad. The men of Kent even invited over to take possession of Dover their old enemy Count Eustace of Boulogne, who had led the fray when the Dover man was slain at his own fireside. The men of Hereford, aided by the Welsh, and commanded by a chief named Edric the Wild, drove the Normans out of their country. Some of those who had been dispossessed of their lands banded together in the north of England, some in Scotland, some in the thick woods and marshes, and whensoever they could fall upon the Normans, or upon the English who had submitted to the Normans, they fought, despoiled, and murdered, like the desperate outlaws that they were. Conspiracies were set on foot for a general massacre of the Normans, like the old massacre of the Danes. In short, the English were in a murderous mood all through the kingdom. 
King William, fearing he might lose his conquest, came back, and tried to pacify the London people by soft words. He then set forth to repress the country people by stern deeds, among the towns which he besieged, and where he killed and maimed the inhabitants without any distinction, sparing none, young or old, armed or unarmed, were Oxford, Warwick, Leicester, Nottingham, Derby, Lincoln, York. In all these places, and in many others, fire and sword worked their utmost horrors, and made the land dreadful to behold. The streams and rivers were discoloured with blood, the sky was blackened with smoke, the fields were wastes of ashes, the waysides were heaped up with dead. Such are the fatal results of conquest and ambition. Although William was a harsh and angry man, I do not suppose that he deliberately meant to work this shocking ruin when he invaded England. But what he had got by the strong hand, he could only keep by the strong hand, and in so doing he made England a great grave. Two sons of Harold, by the name Edmund and Godwin, came over from Ireland, with some ships against the Normans, but were defeated. This was scarcely done when the outlaws in the woods so harassed York that the governor sent to the king for help. The king dispatched a general and a large force to occupy the town of Durham. The bishop of that place met the general outside the town and warned him not to enter, as he would be in danger there. The general cared nothing for the warning and went in with all his men. That night on every hill within sight of Durham signal fires were seen to blaze. When the morning dawned, the English, who had assembled in great strength, forced the gates, rushed into the town, and slew the Normans every one. The English afterwards besought the Danes to come and help them. The Danes came with two hundred and forty ships. The outlawed nobles joined them. They captured York, and drove the Normans out of that city. Then William bribed the Danes to go away, and took such vengeance on the English that all the former fire and sword, smoke and ashes, death and ruin, were nothing compared with it. In melancholy songs and doleful stories, it was still sung and told by cottage fires on winter evenings, a hundred years afterwards, how, in those dreadful days of the Normans, there was not, from the River Humber to the River Tyne, one inhabited village left, nor one cultivated field, how there was nothing but a dismal ruin, where the human creatures and the beasts lay dead together. The outlaws had at this time what they called a camp of refuge, in the midst of the fens of Cambridgeshire. Protected by those marshy grounds which were difficult of approach, they lay among the reeds and rushes, and were hidden by the mists that rose up from the watery earth. Now there was also at that time over the sea in Flanders an Englishman named Hereward, whose father had died in his absence, and whose property had been given to a Norman. When he heard of this wrong that had been done him, from such of the exiled English as chanced to wander into that country, he longed for revenge, and joining the outlaws in their camp of refuge became their commander. He was so good a soldier that the Normans supposed him to be aided by enchantment. William, even after he had made a road three miles in length across the Cambridgeshire marshes, on purpose to attack this supposed enchanter, thought it necessary to engage an old lady, who pretended to be a sorceress, to come and do a little enchantment in the royal cause. For this purpose she was pushed on before the troops in a wooden tower. But Hereward very soon disposed of this unfortunate sorceress, by burning her tower and all. The monks of the convent of Eli near at hand, however, who were fond of good living, and who found it very uncomfortable to have the country blockaded and their supplies of meat and drink cut off, 
showed the king a secret way of surprising the camp. So Hereward was soon defeated. Whether he afterwards died quietly, or whether he was killed after killing sixteen of the men who attacked him, as some old rhymes relate that he did, I cannot say. His defeat put an end to the camp of refuge, and very soon afterwards the king, victorious both in Scotland and in England, quelled the last rebellious English noble. He then surrounded himself with Norman lords, enriched by the property of the English nobles, had a great survey made of all the land in England, which was entered as the property of its new owners, on a roll called the Doomsday Book, obliged the people to put out their fires and candles at a certain hour every night, on the ringing of a bell which was called the curfew, introduced the Norman dresses and manners, made the Normans masters everywhere, and the English servants, turned out the English bishops, and put Normans in their places, and showed himself to be the conqueror indeed. But even with his own Normans he had a restless life. They were always hungering and thirsting for the riches of the English, and the more he gave, the more they wanted. His priests were as greedy as his soldiers. We know of only one Norman who plainly told his master, the king, that he had come with him to England to do his duty as a faithful servant, and that property taken by force from other men had no charms for him. His name was Guibert. We should not forget his name, for it is good to remember and to honour honest men. Besides all these troubles, William the Conqueror was troubled by quarrels among his sons. He had three living. Robert, called Curthose because of his short legs. William, called Rufus, or the Red, from the colour of his hair. And Henry, fond of learning, and called in the Norman language Beauclerc, or Fine Scholar. When Robert grew up, he asked of his father the government of Normandy, which he had nominally possessed as a child under his mother Matilda. The king refusing to grant it, Robert became jealous and discontented, and happening one day well in this temper to be ridiculed by his brothers, who threw water on him from a balcony as he was walking before the door, he drew his sword, rushed upstairs, and was only prevented by the king himself from putting them to death. That same night he hotly departed with some followers from his father's court, and endeavoured to take the castle of Rouen by surprise. Failing in this, he shut himself up in another castle in Normandy, which the king besieged, and where Robert one day unhorsed and nearly killed him without knowing who he was. His submission when he discovered his father, and the intercession of the queen and others, reconciled them, but not soundly, for Robert soon strayed abroad and went from court to court with his complaints. He was a gay, careless, thoughtless fellow, spending all he got on musicians and dancers. But his mother loved him, and often, against the king's command, supplied him with money through a messenger named Samson. At length the incensed king swore he would tear out Samson's eyes, and Samson, thinking that his only hope of safety was in becoming a monk, became one, and went on such errands no more, and kept his eyes in his head. All this time, from the turbulent day of his strange coronation, the conqueror had been struggling, you see, at any cost of cruelty and bloodshed, to maintain what he had seized. All his reign he struggled still, with the same object ever before him. He was a stern, bold man, and he succeeded in it. He loved money, and was particular in his eating, but he had only leisure to indulge one other passion, and that was his love of hunting. He carried it to such a height that he ordered whole villages and towns to be swept away to make forests for the deer. Not satisfied with sixty-eight royal forests, he laid waste to an immense district to form another in Hampshire called the New Forest. 
the many thousands of miserable peasants who saw their little houses pulled down, and themselves and children turned into the open country without a shelter, detested him for his merciless addition to their many sufferings. And when, in the twenty-first year of his reign, which proved to be the last, he went over to Rouen, England was as full of hatred against him as if every leaf on every tree in all his royal forests had been a curse upon his head. In the new forest his son Richard, for he had four sons, had been gored to death by a stag, and the people said that this cruelly made forest would yet be fatal to others of the conqueror's race. He was engaged in a dispute with the king of France about some territory. While he stayed at Rouen, negotiating with that king, he kept his bed and took medicines, being advised by his physicians to do so, on account of having grown to an unwieldy size. Word being brought to him that the king of France made light of this, and joked about it, he swore in a great rage that he should rue his jests. He assembled his army, marched into the disputed territory, burnt his old way, the vines, the crops, and fruit, and set the town of Mantes on fire. But in an evil hour, for as he rode over the hot ruins, his horse, setting his hoofs upon some burning embers, started, threw him forward against the pommel of the saddle, and gave him a mortal hurt. For six weeks he lay dying in a monastery near Rouen, and then made his will, giving England to William, Normandy to Robert, and five thousand pounds to Henry. And now his violent deeds lay heavy on his mind. He ordered money to be given to many English churches and monasteries, and, which was much better repentance, released his prisoners of state, some of whom had been confined in his dungeons twenty years. It was a September morning, and the sun was rising, when the king was awakened from slumber by the sound of a church bell. "'What bell is that?' he faintly asked. They told him it was the bell of the chapel of St. Mary. "'I commend my soul,' said he, "'to Mary,' and died." Think of his name, the Conqueror, and then consider how he lay in death. The moment he was dead, his physicians, priests, and nobles, not knowing what contest for the throne might now take place, or what might happen in it, hastened away, each man for himself and his own property. The mercenary servants of the court began to rob and plunder. The body of the king, in the indecent strife, was rolled from the bed and lay alone for hours upon the ground. O conqueror, of whom so many great names are proud now, of whom so many great names thought nothing then, it were better to have conquered one true heart than England. By and by the priests came creeping in with prayers and candles, and a good knight named Herluin undertook, which no one else would do, to convey the body to Cain, in Normandy, in order that it might be buried in St. Stephen's church there, which the conqueror had founded. But fire, of which he had made such bad use in his life, seemed to follow him of itself in death. A great conflagration broke out in the town when the body was placed in the church, and those present running out to extinguish the flames, it was once again left alone. It was not even buried in peace. It was about to be let down in its royal robes into a tomb near the high altar, in presence of a great concourse of people, when a loud voice in the crowd cried out, This ground is mine! Upon it stood my father's house. This king despoiled me of both ground and house to build this church. In the great name of God, I here forbid his body to be covered with the earth that is my right. The priests and bishops present, knowing the speaker's right, and knowing that the king had often denied him justice, paid him down sixty shillings for the grave. 
Even then the corpse was not at rest. The tomb was too small, and they tried to force it in. It broke. A dreadful smell arose, and the people hurried out into the air, and for the third time it was left alone. Where were the conqueror's three sons that they were not at their father's burial? Robert was lounging among minstrels, dancers, and gamesters in France or Germany. Henry was carrying his five thousand pounds safely away in a convenient chest he had got made. William the Red was hurrying to England to lay hands upon the royal treasure and the crown. End of chapter 8